Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Humans are the only creatures that can perform complicated mathematics. This week we find out about nature and maths. Now, all kinds of species can be shown to do different types of calculations. And this week we found out about bees and find out what mathematics bees can do. Plus what we can learn from the chorus of frogs and apply to improving digital communications and how we can study all those Instagram and Twitter pics and figure out how to help save species of birds. Now the invention of mathematics has been essential to the evolution of civilization. Way back since the early Egyptians and Babylonians really codified laws of mathematics and various parts of the world developed on and traded ideas backwards and forwards to lead us to the concept that we have today. For example, our concept of zero comes from India. The idea of numerals that we use in our counting system comes from the Arabic numeral set. Algebra actually comes from algebra. And these are all kinds of terms that you might be familiar with in mathematics. But mathematics, from the simple arithmetic all the way up to complex differential calculus, has a lot of different ideas in it. Some of them are abstract and some of them are straightforward. To get your head around them, you need to be able to abstractize these ideas and know what they mean. To recognize that a plus symbol means to add things together and a minus symbol means to subtract them. Now, while these seem like simple things to you and I, because we've learned them, they're actually a reasonably complex idea. But of course humans have developed language and writing to communicate these ideas in simple and straightforward ways. And various languages from different peoples have different ways of communicating the concept of addition and subtraction and overall numbers in general. Of course even just the counting systems and the base, which is the number of times before you repeat to the next incremental order in a counting system, varies from the simplest in binary, two states, all the way up to very complicated ones like the Babylonian scripts, which have 64 base. But all of these are based around communicating in languages, either written or spoken. But are we the only things able to communicate in languages? This is a question that puzzles a lot of people, whether it be astrobiologists trying to find alien life, or people who are just trying to understand the concept of language and mathematics. This question has been researched by researchers from the RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia, and published in the journal Science Advances. And to tackle this question of whether or not you could have an idea of language and mathematics working together that can be learnt by other things, not just humans. They taught one of the smartest creatures in the world to count and subtract. And they did this in a pretty ingenious way. Now what creature it is, you may be asking. Well, it's not dolphins. And it's not dogs, though dogs and dolphins are both pretty clever. It's in fact bees. Now bees have a pretty interesting and complicated society. They have a hive, they have to hunt for food, they have to work together as teams, and they have to communicate with a language. We know that they communicate with language of dancing, for example. So given all of this, we understand that honeybees, as species being investigated, have some idea about how to communicate and have the cognitive ability to be able to process the idea of communication. But the researchers were keen to understand whether or not they can understand not just basics of mathematics, because they'd already proven in earlier studies that bees could be, be taught to understand the concept of zero. And bear in mind that Western civilization didn't have a defined concept of zero till very late. So being able to teach it to bees is pretty interesting. 
but they turn their attention to the next question. Can they perform abstract mathematical calculations? Would well, you really need to be able to do something with mathematics? And to do this, they had to set up a school for bees, which is actually a pretty simple thing to do. It involves a maze. And inside this maze, there'll be two, two pathways. One led to a correct choice and the other led to a bitter tasting quinine solution. So they could either have sugar water or quinine, basically in a Y-shaped maze. Now, there are a couple of different things in this maze to give the bees some clues about where they should be going. So when a bee flew into the entrance of the maze, they would see a set of elements between one to five shapes, and the shapes were coloured. They were either blue, which meant the bee had to add, or yellow, which meant the bee had to subtract. And after viewing the initial number, the bee would then fly through a hole into a decision chamber. So they would see the shapes, then they'd go into another room, and then in that room they'd be presented with their two choices, left or right. Now one side had the incorrect solution, the other side had the correct solution. Now during the experiment, they moved around these, of course, to try and control for the fact that they may have just learned the pathway. And the actual solutions were plus one or minus one. So that's the symbols and shapes that they were being taught. And at the beginning of the experiment, the bees themselves just made random choices until they could work out how to solve the problem. So eventually, after about 100 learning trials each, that took about four to seven hours, the bees learned that blue, when they saw it in the shape chamber, meant plus one, and yellow meant minus one. And then when they saw the new set of numbers in the room, they could actually use it to immediately find the correct pathway. Not try both options, just immediately head to the right one. And as researcher Scarlett Howard points out, the findings show that complex understanding of mathematical symbols as a language is something that many brains can probably achieve and it helps explain how human cultures independently all develop this concept of numeracy skills. And it's a pretty fascinating one, because it means that the bees can solve difference problems, which might be how they're often successful at foraging. If they're able to find, well, this one is better than this one, because although they have more or less at a certain place, it helps them plan their pathing, which when trying to coordinate a large society like a hive, might be incredibly valuable. So having some evidence that bees not only have long-term memory to be able to learn things, but also short-term memory to be able to process the numbers, so they can learn a long-term habit of recognizing the shapes and colors, but also the short-term to be able to apply that and remember in the previous room what they'd seen. And then also the abstract concept is in the color, this is minus, this is plus. This shows that all this mathematics, which seems quite complex, doesn't require a massive brain. It just requires a brain of a bee, which whilst impressive that they're able to perform this, isn't incredibly complex. So this goes to show that many animals, if you repeat it or able to form a similar trial, could probably be shown to show similar capabilities. And previous studies have shown that some primates, birds, and even spiders can do addition and subtraction. And this just adds bees to the list. But bees are an interesting case given the highly organized societies that they function in. So if we could learn to speak B, we'd probably find out that there's a lot of maths going on in all that buzzing backwards and forwards to the hive. There's some great work out of RMIT University in Melbourne, published in the journal Science Advances. Now from the buzzings of 
bees is another sound very common in nature, and that is the croaking of a frog. And if you put a whole bunch of frogs together, you get a chorus of frogs. Well, if you're an ancient Greek playwright, you could write whole plays about that. But it also is a sound that is universal in not just its appeal, but familiarity. But you may not think it, but there's a lot of complicated mathematics going on in the chorus of the frogs. And not only does that have applications in general mathematical principles, it's actually something that can help us understand how we should set up sensor networks and digital communications. And this has been studied by researchers from the Osaka University and the University of Tsukaba in Japan. Now, what they looked at was the calling patterns of a variety of Japanese male tree frogs, and they looked at them over different time intervals. Now, to study the singing of frogs in a choir, well, you need to get three frogs and place them inside individual cages, and then record the interplay between their vocals. And what they found is published in the journal Royal Society of Open Science. And what they found is the frogs avoided both overlapping their croaks and collectively switched between calling and silence. The researchers then took this and built a mathematical model to adapt the frogs' acoustic teachings and try to apply it as a similar technology for a communication protocol for sensors or data communication. And the way in which the frogs avoided temporal overlap allowed for a clear path for individual voices to be heard. One of the key authors, Daichi Konimani, explains. In the same way, neighbouring nodes in a sensor network need to alternate the timings of data transmission to avoid the data packets colliding. So there was basically times in these frog trios where there was overlap avoidance, so basically everything trying to speak only one at a time, which is they call consistent or deterministic behaviour. But there are later parts where collective calls were made, all frogs talking at once, which is referred to as stochastic which shows that the frogs are able to adapt from one mode of calling to another mode of calling and adapt pretty quickly. So the mathematical model that they developed is one that uses what they call calling and silent states in a deterministic way. And so they took that, they modeled these different states in a predefined way, and then they modeled the transitions for them in a stochastic way. And these models reproduce the same type of calling pattern. And they were quite helpful for the researchers, like author Ikuya Aihara, in developing distributed communication systems for drones, for example. Now, any type of system must cleverly and have a clear way of regulating give and take to give them time to talk and time to rest, which from an energy management perspective for a robot is very important. And as the last part of the study is they took this whole application and they used it as a data traffic manager in a wireless sensor network. If you think about Internet of Things, Industry 4.0, or smart devices, they all rely on lots of sensors scattered everywhere. But if there's lots of sensors scattered everywhere, they're all talking at once, could be incredibly noisy and difficult to actually send the data anywhere. But if each of those nodes are able to communicate and figure out each other's communication patterns with what's around them, which may change over time, they could also have a nice centralized way of communicating that is less energy intensive. And the researchers found that short timescale alternation was especially effective in avoiding data packet collisions. Meanwhile, the cyclical and collective transitions in a long time scale meant that they could have some rest periods, which is quite important from a device perspective to reduce energy consumption. So this study, as researcher Masayuki Murata points out, is that it has a dual benefit. It will lead to growth of greater biological knowledge and understanding of frog song and choruses, and a greater technological efficiency. 
especially when it comes to wireless sensor networks. In biomimicry, we can learn a lot from nature and apply it to sometimes really odd sounding applications. The connections of frogs singing to digital sensors and data transmission may not be an immediately obvious leap, but it's one that can be quite beneficial. If you find yourself in a particularly lovely area with full with beautiful environments, maybe some beautiful coastside or temperate forests, you might pull out your phone and take a picture. You might upload that picture to Twitter or to Flickr. But using all of that data, researchers have published in the journal of Science of Total Environment a way to analyse just how much pressure all this visitation is putting onto the species that live in those areas, and seeing if there's any overlap between the areas most Instagram worthy and the areas that most important from a biodiversity perspective. Now the problem is in biodiversity conservation we are really trying to put out a lot of fires at once. We don't really have enough resources to dedicate to making sure everywhere is protected. But if you're going to pick an area to protect which one do you pick? And the problem is tourism to conservation areas is a really fast growing industry particularly people who are seeking nature-based experiences. But this tends to overlap with areas that are incredibly important for bird and biodiversity, specifically labelled as an important bird and biodiversity area. And these are some of the most naturally beautiful places across the planet, but at the same time, the most significant. So that's why researchers like Dr. Stuart Butchart from the Chief Scientist of BirdLife International and researchers like Dr. Anna Hausman from the University of Helsinki have been trying to find a way to explore the connection between human tourism and those which are incredibly important from a biodiversity and a species conservation perspective. And social media content and metadata contain useful information to understand people's interactions over space and time. They can also use to cross-validate research collected by other conservation organizations. For example, about 17% of all important bird and biodiversity areas, or IBA areas, were assessed by experts to have a higher grade of human disturbance and a very, very high density of social media use tagged to that particular location. And that's an example of how these locales can be a great attractive thing for tourism, which is important for the local area, but it also puts those species under pressure. In particular, the important bird and biodiversity areas located in Europe and Asia, those who are in temperate biomes, had the highest density of social media use. And these sites of importance are often very important congregation points for a lot of different species. And they also tend to be accessible and in densely populated areas. But they also were hugely high visitation rates for different bird species. So not only the humans drawn to these locations, birds and other species are as well. And that is a recipe for conflict between the two needs. One as a need for tourism, the other as a need for conservation. So in conservation efforts, it gives you a good way to focus and target which areas should be prioritised for conservation management. So humans can provide extra data, crowdsourced data, through all their photos that helps scientists target and better understand which areas will be at greater risk than others. 
And this highlights, through some great work from the University of Helsinki and other partner organisations, the importance that we can play in not only preserving and conserving species and their habitats, but also making sure that when we let people into those areas, we do so in a way that doesn't put the species at risk. It shows that sometimes all those Instagram photos and snap pics and so on can actually be a force for good for helping advance science, as found in the recent journal published, The Science of Total Environment. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From using Twitter to help save birds and studying the chorus of frogs to improve digital communications, we also found out about how complicated mathematics can be even performed by B. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.